Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders, and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Please allow me to introduce you to our guest today, Adam Bryant, the uh, the author of The CEO Test. Adam, welcome. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's just a pleasure to have you and really enjoyed your book. Why did you write this book? So I've been in the leadership space uh, about 12 years now, starting with a weekly interview series that I created when I was at the New York Times called uh, The Corner Office, um, which was based on a very simple what if, which is what if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them a single question about their companies um, and instead just asked them about kind of leadership lessons they've learned over the course of their lives and how they think about teams and culture and hiring, all these kind of timeless themes. Uh, And again, steering away from, you know, how does next quarter look? or asking about their new product. You know, I interviewed 525 CEOs then. I left the Times in 2017 for my current role. Um, I work for a consulting firm called the Exco Group. We do mentoring, one-on-one mentoring at the C-suite level. And we also work with leadership teams. The CEO test was my third book. Um, and I think that in terms of the why, it's really captured in the subtitle of the book, which is what are the challenges that make or break all leaders? And really trying to, uh, you know, identify those core challenges and not just say these are the big challenges, but also provide a really practical playbook on how to navigate them. Um, It's one of the things I've really come to appreciate in this consulting part of my career is you go into a lot of big companies and there is this kind of more is better bias in the leadership space. You know, if we want you to think about 20 leadership competencies, well, maybe 50 would be better. And then we're going to give you another 50 next year. Um, And you know, I don't think that's really helpful because, you know, there's that expression from the golfing world, paralysis by analysis. If you're trying to keep 50 things in your head on how to be a better leader, um, you just can't do it. And so my co-author and I, Kevin Sher, is the former CEO of Amgen. We really set ourselves our own test, which is like, could we identify the core challenges that make or break all leaders? Yes, the book is called the CEO test, but we kind of flip the lens a bit and say, you know, there, yes, there are some unique challenges that CEOs face, but what if we talked about the challenges that all leaders face, whether you're managing a team of 10 people or you're the CEO of a 500,000 employee company, uh, and then describe those. And, you know, the thing about the test is you don't have to score a perfect 10 on all of them, but there is a kind of threshold level of competence and success that you need if you want to stay in these jobs, because, you know, it's, I think it's pretty interesting that the average tenure of CEOs now is about five years. It's been coming down over time. So really just asking, like, why do people fail in these jobs? But not just identifying that again, saying like, okay, what's the best advice from CEOs on how to succeed in those tests? Well, I think uh, certainly the NFL could utilize you as fast as some of those teams <laughs> go through head coaches. This is a book that should be a must read for the NFL. <laughs> Exactly. So um, how many CEOs did you interview for this particular book and what percentage were women and, and, and what were men and what was the average age of these folks? 
Sure. So when, when I started the series, as I mentioned, uh, Corn Rocks back in 2009, um, one, I, it was based on two what ifs. One of them was what if I sat down with CEOs and didn't ask them about their companies? And the other one, um, at the time, I said to myself, what if I interview a lot of women and people of color and never ask them any race or gender specific questions? Um, and because it, it always still to this day, but it bothered me how when people would interview female CEOs or black CEOs, that there was usually a question, you know, so what's it like to be a female CEO or what's it like to be? It's like, which is, there's about 50 reasons why that's a ridiculous and insulting question. Um, and uh, I know the CEOs themselves were pretty tired of, uh, of, of answering those questions. Um, and so I really, I, I want to create a new kind of conversation where I just interviewed everybody the same way, which is as leaders first and only and get rid of the adjective uh, in front of the word leader. So, you know, my New York Times series, I'd probably say, you know, more than 40%, close to 50% were women and people of color. Um, ages, you know, I really am tried to embrace diversity in every sense of the word, race, gender, nationality, size of company, for-profit, not-for-profit, industries, different countries. Um, I, I looked for leadership everywhere. It wasn't just sort of traditional CEOs. I interviewed Kenny Chesney, the country music star. Uh, I interviewed a, a Broadway production stage manager, um, just looking for interesting people who were super thoughtful about leadership. And in terms of age, you know, I interviewed entrepreneurs who were in their 20s and really seasoned CEOs who were in their 80s. So um, just with this goal of like, what have you learned? Right. Because it, uh, my, you know, I often think in terms of leadership, the thing that gets me up in the morning and kind of my overarching goal with all my work in leadership. And by now I've written three books. I probably interviewed close to 700 CEOs. You know, leadership is super hard. And I feel like if somebody starts, um, you know, maybe gets their first management leadership role when they're, say, 35 and they work till they're 65, we know for certain that over those 30 years, they are going to learn some things about leadership, right? And they're probably going to do it through trial and error and some tough experiences. And so they're going to come to some of those foundational insights. But my goal is to help people shorten the learning curve so that if they're in those leadership roles, you know, share with them a bunch of insights and stories and tools and tips and takeaways so that they can become better leaders faster. Um, and what's also been really interesting for me about the approach I take is, you know, interview the CEOs, ask them open-ended questions, do a condensation. And I've really come to understand that these interviews, they're kind of like Rorschach tests or classic ink blots. And I, I've learned from experience that if I sh shared the same interview with 20 different people, I would hear 20 different reactions from it's like, I love this person, you know, I'd walk through walls for them and other people go, there's something about this person, it doesn't really click with me. Um, and they're kind of like mirrors that people hold up to themselves, and they can reflect on their own values and backgrounds. And so, you know, that's, again, my approach. And then the exercise of writing the books is really, for me about like, what are the patterns? What are the 
you know, what are the uh, the themes that emerge? And I always write books, not because I have what I wake up one day with the answer. It's I wake up and figure out like, what's the right question to ask? And then I go through my hundreds of interviews looking for patterns that help answer that question. So that's my approach. I think anybody who writes books, as I've written books, it's an intellectual curiosity. Uh, and, and that's why you write them. You're curious, uh, and you know other people will be as well. Uh, were men and women's experiences different? You know, I, I think um, that women and people of color uh, face a lot of headwinds um, in their careers. And, you know, since I left the Times in 2017, I've started four interview series on LinkedIn, um, one with CEOs, one with board directors, one with chief human resource officers. And last fall, we started a, an interview series called Leading in the B-Suite. It's obviously it's a play on C-Suite. But our goal there is to interview prominent black leaders um, and really sort of help highlight the, the conversation and, and successful leaders, um, uh, black leaders, and, and really explore themes of, of some of the headwinds that they've faced in the workplace and how to have con constructive conversations about race and what can and should be done to increase representation of black leaders. I, I have a partner on that project, um, a woman named Rhonda Morris, who's the uh, CHRO at Chevron. Uh, I met her in 2019 and we sort of hatched the idea for this together. But, um, you know, I've, I've a lot of people right now are talking about things like unconscious bias and a lot of companies are making commitments and pledges and training and, and all this, but I think it's helpful to frame things up in terms of headwinds, right? And I just think if you're a, a woman or a person of color in the workplace, you are going to face headwinds. And as much as we might wish that we can train them away or say they don't exist, they exist. Um, and so in a lot of the interviews, we explore sort of what are those headwinds? And then ask, like, how do you navigate them, right? And sometimes that can lead to sort of very tactical approaches. Like if somebody says this to you or mansplains you, it takes credit for an idea, uh, talks over you, like, how do you confront that person um, and in a constructive way? So, uh, you know, I think there are definite challenges, but again, my goal is to sort of help share some of the tactical playbooks on if you're going to encounter these headwinds, then how do you navigate through them? Yeah, I think a lot of this is going away. My daughter runs a global marketing uh, company and her husband works for her. And uh, I think the younger generations, uh, they're, this is dissipating pretty quickly. I don't think we'll have this same conversation 10 years from now. I, 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 I hope so. And then I... Uh, all the black leaders that we were interviewing, we often ask them, like, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Like, I think the way people talk about it, is this a moment or is it a movement? And I think most people feel like this is a movement, that things are changing permanently. Um, and I, I love this expression that one CEO we interviewed, um, I think she came up with it on the spot, but she said, you know, they're in the same way that there is a generation of digital natives just to grow up with technology. And for them, it's like breathing. She's, she thinks that there is going to be a generation of, of anti-racist natives, just, you know, the generation for whom this is just like everybody understands this. And if grandpa says something like really off key at Thanksgiving dinner, it's like, no, you're going to call him out this time and say, you can't say that anymore, grandpa. You know, like those days are done. So, uh, again, I think there's a lot of um, 
there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic that the change is going to be long lasting. No, no question about it. And we've been seeing it even in the venture world. 20 years ago, they used to be hesitant about investing in women, thinking they'll get pregnant, have kids and not be able to follow through on their commitments. Right. But now I never hear that uh, come up anymore. Now, if I hear anything and it's about anybody's venture, is it, is it just scalable? Um, did ages affect their experience, the in, people you interviewed? You know, I, I think I, I've interviewed a lot of CEOs. Um, I'm thinking of one in particular, this guy named Seth Besmertnik, and he runs a search engine optimization company called Conductor. And I had this uh, this moment when I conduct all the interviews in person or whether it's over Zoom now, but um, I had this experience. He was 29 when I interviewed him. I think he'd been building the company for about five years. And at the end of talking to him for an hour and a half, I just looked at him and I said, you're like a 40-year-old man trapped in a 29-year-old's body. Like You have a level of wisdom that is just way beyond your years. Um, and I think in many ways, like, you know, it's a bit of a habit of mind that of entrepreneurs and successful people is that, you know, you learn really quickly, but there's also this idea of, you know, I sometimes think of experience like a sort of like a wet towel, right? Like we all have different experiences, but the question is, what do you do with them? And I think really successful people, they take whatever experience they had and they just wring it like that wet towel and get every drop of insight. Like, why did that work? Why did this meeting work better than that? Why is this team performing better than that team? Whatever experiences they're having, they're constantly questioning and asking themselves, so what are the patterns here? What did I learned from it? And because of that, some people you know, became in many ways, much older than their chronological age. My shorthand for it is like, what's your Yoda age, right? Like you've got your chronological age, but then how much wiser are you uh, in terms of years than your chronological age? And I, I just met a ton of people who were like him and seem to have learned a lot of things at a young age. I think that he was an entrepreneur, correct? He started yeah. the business himself. Yep. I think that makes a, a huge difference. I had students of mine who were entrepreneurs and at 21, they were more sophisticated and more knowledgeable than people who spent, let's say, 30 years working for a large corporation because they were handling every aspect of the business. And it made them grow like in dog years. That yes, fast. that's a great phrase. Are there differences in leadership styles and capabilities based on industry, education, and areas of expertise? The one pattern that I did see, so I interviewed a lot of tech entrepreneurs, um, not because I'm particularly fascinated with tech, but I found a lot of them were really creative about culture. Um, and I think part of it is because so many of them had, had an engineering background and, and an entrepreneurial mindset. So there's, there's just a lot of, you know, they would sort of look at corporate culture almost like software code like if i change the inputs will we get different outputs and let's experiment with different things so um i just i heard a lot of like really creative approaches and you know let's try this and what about this employee benefit and what if we do that and i remember one ceo i interviewed um said that they decided to offer i think it was monthly if not weekly or every other week free house cleaning for their employees and I thought, what a brilliant benefit for like employee retention, right? Because if, you know, somebody says, I think I'm getting a new job, like their spouse or partner at home goes, you're not getting a new job. 
I love that free house cleaning, right? Um, and just this sort of constant experimentation about how to build a culture and run teams and try different approaches and leadership styles. Uh, to me, I, I found that really engaging. And, and my sense is I would find more of that in among tech entrepreneurs than I would, say, somebody running a 150-year-old factory business. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, they're very methodical, but they're open to everything. The younger they are, the more open and willing to make changes. Uh, what percentage of your interviewees were ex-military, and did their training in the military make them better leaders? Because that's the whole thing about the military. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not sure what the percentages. I, I did interview many of them. Um, don't know the exact number, but I think so much of the military training is this idea of selflessness, right? Kind of looking after your your troops or whatever group you're responsible for. Um, and just heard some kind of wonderful and memorable stories about that. But just, you know, this idea of like I'm responsible for the health and safety and livelihood of my team. And, and it really is kind of built in that selflessness. That said, I mean, there are aspects of the military that I think you know, aren't really all that effective. Um, this idea of like hierarchy and command and control and all that, that in some ways grew out of the military, but that's just not working in this day and age. I mean, I really feel like after the last 15 months we've been through, um, you know, the era of command and control leadership is kind of officially over because anybody who sits at the head of the table and says, I know exactly what we should do is going to lose credibility pretty quickly. Um, and I, to be clear, I don't want to sort of su suggest something broad brush about the military, but I'm just saying like there are the, the sort of roots of like hierarchy, et cetera. Um, I think that is transitioning into a much different approach for leadership today. Yeah, in fact, uh, we had a guest on the show who said that the military has now uh, had, in the last 10 years, opened up offices in Silicon Valley and intermixed military with Silicon Valley leaders in order for them to adjust their leadership style and learn from them. One of the questions from the audience is, have you noticed certain lessons learned at different stages? The, the one thing that comes to mind is that I've interviewing a lot of entrepreneurs. It's there's a lot of stories of kind of regret that they didn't start thinking about culture earlier in the process. Um, and, you know, you have to give them a pass, right? If you're building a company, your two main goals are like, like shipping product and getting, you know, revenue in the door, right? And everything else is a fire to be put out. But I have heard a lot of them say, you know, I just wished I had started thinking about that earlier. And, you know, I, I did interview uh, Tony Shea, who tragically died, you know, in that house fire in Connecticut, we, you know, ran Zappos, yeah. but a memorable story from him, um, company that he built before he went to Zappos uh, was a company called Link Exchange that they ultimately sold to Microsoft for like $365 million. But he told me this vivid story of when they were building the company, it was growing really quickly. You know, when he wake up in the morning, he kept hitting the snooze button on his alarm because he didn't want to go to work at his own company because he didn't like the culture. And that's why he became, you know, so passionate about culture at Zappos, because he had lived through what happens if you're not mindful of it. You know, it's funny you should say that I was CEO of a company and every day I was praying that the train would derail that took me to the office. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I was 31 years old and I did not think about the culture. And, but now at 60, I would have tried to develop something different. Another question from the audience. Uh, do you think with more and more employees, uh, WFH and for longer, will the CEO need a significant change in their approach? Totally. I mean, to me, I... I often think about this moment that we are living through right now and having living through the, for the 15 years for all the tragedy, there've been a lot of silver linings. And I sometimes reflect on the idea that 50 years from now, if somebody sits down to write a book of the history of the American corporation or something, they are going to devote probably three chapters to the moment that we're living through right now. You know, because I think there's three big changes that is going on. One is the role of companies in society, right? People, a lot of society's challenges are, are kind of rolling past the front door of government agencies to the front door of companies to solve, especially around diversity and equity and inclusion. Um, and we're seeing companies increasingly become activists and taking sides on political issues. Um, so that's been a huge change. I mean, the business roundtable in late 2019 said, you know, the era of stake uh, shareholder capitalism is shifting to stakeholder capitalism. And people are still debating that's true, but I think the debate is over. So that's point one. Point two, just the shift in the nature of work itself, you know, hybrid work environments, working from home, the digital acceleration uh, that we've seen. And finally, just leadership itself, I think. You know, the wall between personal and professional came down uh, when we were all sort of working over Zoom um, and qualities like humanity, empathy, leading with compassion. Um, these things are now the, the core skills of leadership. A lot of people talk about this idea of sort of agility too, and are you can you embrace ambiguity? And I think that's another key thing. It's going to be one of those X factors that uh, really sets leaders apart it. And I love a great sort of metaphor or image that captures that idea. And we interviewed a head of talent uh, at a Zurich insurance company. And he said, you know, leaders increasingly, it's just like they have to solve one Rubik's cube after another. It's like this brand new problem. It's like, okay, how do we figure this out? Okay, we figured that out. It's like, here's a brand new problem. Let's figure that out. And you have to be able to do that very quickly. And to me, for all these kind of grand ideas about embracing ambiguity and all that, it's like, to me, that's like a vivid, concrete depiction of what you need leaders to be able to do. It's like, here's a new problem. I don't know how to solve it, but I'm going to figure it out. Yeah, I also think that leaders are realizing that these uh, crazy compensation schemes where the top makes so much and the bottom makes so little, especially after the pandemic, is going to lead to more profit sharing in companies because I think people are really fed up with CEOs making 3,000 times what the average worker's making. When you and I were younger and they made 60 times the average worker back in the 80s, a lot of CEOs were embarrassed that anybody would even know they made 60 times. And now the compensation is just so out of whack and uh, the disparity is so great. So I think a lot of that is going to change as, as well. Another question from the audience. So do you think culture is a top-down decision or should employees have input in the decision? I, it should be a little bit of both. And, and I have heard 
all variations. There's the CEO who says, you know, I'm going to go off and think of our values myself. And usually those are founders, right? Um, and then there are others who basically say, like, I'm going to outsource it to the employees and let them come up with it. Um, ideally, I think it's kind of, it's best when it's a bit of both. I mean, the leader ultimately has to have the final say, in effect, be the editor. If a company is going through the values exercise, for example, but there should be a sense of input um, from employees. And, you know, I, 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 there's a chapter in, in the book about uh, sort of how to build a, a culture that, that is feels real and matters. Um, and I think so much of it does come down to this exercise of coming up with the values. And let's face it, most companies just kind of go through the exercise and maybe at an offsite and come up with a bunch of amorphous words like excellence and integrity. Yeah, it's and bullshit. They, yeah, and they put them on the wall in the, you know, the foyer or something, but nobody ever knows them and nobody ever lives them. And even worse, you know, you often see the proverbial high performing jerk getting promoted who's behaving in ways that directly contradict the values, which of course makes everybody else cynical. So that's the bad movie version, right? I think the the best approaches to really if you go in with it is like if every company has unique dna we need the words and phrases that that somehow capture that so that there is this feeling of like these are unique to us um, and that they're articulated and there's specific behaviors on the, under them and then they are reinforced at literally every step of the employee experience from hiring to onboarding to quarterly and annual awards, why people get fired. There's just this feeling like these are re real guardrails. And I, I will sh share the story. I mean, in that culture chapter, we go pretty deep on a case study, this company called Twilio, they do cloud communications in the Valley. Um, and they have a value that's probably one of my favorites and their value is draw the owl. And it's based on an internet meme that went viral many years ago. It's basically two panels in this meme uh, for how to draw an owl. And the first panel is draw three circles and it's just three overlapping circles. Um, and then the second panel is draw the rest of the owl and it's a fully rendered owl. There's also a curse word in the middle of that mm -hmm. sentence, but it's like draw the rest of the owl. And the whole point of that, of course, it's this kind of tongue in cheek thing of like, just figure it out. Right, like how to draw an owl, just figure out how to draw the owl. And it went viral inside the company uh, when it popped up on the internet. They adopted it as one of their values. Their owl is now their mascot. And uh, it's also just kind of like a shorthand. You know, Jeff Lawson, who's the CEO of Twilio, made a great point to me. He said, you know, the best values should almost feel like they could be hashtags. Right. And you think of what a hashtag is. It's just like a, you know, everyday conversational phrase that's shorthand for a bigger idea that everybody gets and maybe makes you smile a little bit when people say it. But to me, like, that's the example of what it looks like, because in everyday conversation at Twilio, they said, you know, this new hire, man, they're like so good. They drew the owl the other day on this project we're working on. You can see that, whereas you know, companies saying like that employee acted with integrity yesterday and excellence and customer centricity. You know what I mean? It just feels very artificial. Yeah, you got to be authentic for sure. And today, these people just they can work from like anywhere in the world, and they can work for anybody, but and they go somewhere else. Another question from the audience: Was there any common why amongst all entrepreneurs? that uh, were that you studied if yes was there why 
how important money for them before starting out on their own company? Yeah, my sense, it, it wasn't really the driver is more just like habit of mind. You know, they sort of like building things and solving problems and businesses just kind of a vehicle for uh, for those things, because let's face it, there's a fair amount of risk. Right. Um, so uh, I'm not going to say they weren't motivated by money. It's not like they were building a nonprofit or anything like that. But I, I think to me, it was more just about like the way their brain was wired. I've, I've interviewed some people who they seem to have like so much energy that their skin just existed to sort of contain that volcanic energy. And the business was kind of an outlet for it. Um, but there's just this desire to like impact and build things and money was a byproduct of it rather than the goal. And again, like I'm not naive. I'm not saying they weren't motivated by money, but it didn't feel like that was like, they're just builders, you know? Uh, I agree with you. I'm a serial entrepreneur and I'm surrounded by serial entrepreneurs. All my friends are entrepreneurs. I never heard one of them talk about the money first. It was all about, oh, they came across this problem that they wanted to solve. And that's what got them excited in the morning because, hey, those guys could still make money in other ways. It wasn't about the money. Uh, what lessons can be learned from leadership challenges at the highest levels that can help leaders perform better in their jobs? To me, um, the single most important thing, I mean, having interviewed close to 700 leaders now, I've always been asking myself, what is it about these people that explains, you know, why they got to the top or created companies? I mean, diverse backgrounds, what's the through line? And, you know, yes, it requires a certain amount of drive and habit of mind. But to me, the core skill is around this idea of simplifying complexity. Um, it's just this ability to distill down, you know, whatever complexity there is around them, the industry, the world at large, but to sort of take all that and boil it down to either an idea or a strategy that is simple and clear. Um, that's something that really sets people apart. And I have to say, just now that I'm in the consulting chapter of my career, working with a lot of leadership teams at big companies, strategy that that skill is often in short supply. Um, a lot of companies, really, even though every company has a strategy, to me, it, a lot of those strategies struggle because they are simply too complicated. And we all kind of know what those strategy slides look like. You know, there might be like seven bullet points on the right-hand side, and then there's a colored tiered pyramid on the left-hand side, some corkscrew arrows and labels here and all that. And maybe it makes sense in the moment, but you can't remember it 30 seconds later. Um, and so, you know, and I think there's a whole bunch of reasons, many of them understandable, why companies struggle with strategy. Um, CEOs often have blind spots, and one of them is that the strategy is often much clearer in their own head than it is to everybody else. Um, so that discipline of being able to sort of stand up on the stage and say, like, this is where we're going, this is how we're going to get there, uh, and do it in a way that's memorable and, and in a way that everybody on the front lines of the company can see how they fit into it. Because I do think Part of a leader's job is to essentially answer two questions for every employee. It's like, what should you be doing and why is it important, right? Because without those lines, people will just create their own narratives of what they should be doing. So again, to me, that's like such a core skill and, and that is often manifested in a really clear and simple strategy. 
Um, and we could talk for hours about like how to set strategy in a way that's useful. That's not oversimplifying complexity, but to me, like that's the thing that really, for me, separates uh, a lot of leaders. A lot of it, uh, I taught college at a lot of different places. And when I was at Wharton, the students would, and I was teaching MBAs and executive MBAs, they were always telling me that they wanted to go to companies for the t- two things that you had mentioned already. But the third thing for them was, how are you going to make me better? Like, yeah, I know what I'm going to do for you, but how are you going to make me better so I can maximize my potential? Because if you're not maximizing my potential, then why am I here? And I think that you're seeing more of that now as kids are graduating from school, especially the high achievers. Yeah, and I, I mean, we could talk for hours just about that alone, but I, I am often struck by, again, another remarkable moment we are living through. But I feel like there's this, you know, it's almost like an arm wrestle, a rewriting of the employment contract. I mean, Mark, you and I are basically the same age when yeah. we were growing up. I felt like the whole thing was like, what are you going to do for the company, right? The, yeah. Um, and now the the script has been kind of flipped and employees have more leverage now and in effect saying, well, what are you going to do for me? Um, and, uh, you know, again, I think there's a right balance. I mean, some people can over index on that and basically sort of, you know, say, I'm not, I'm going to make the company or my boss responsible for my career development. You have to own that yourself, but, uh, it's been interesting to see how that plays out. Question from the audience as a solo entrepreneur. Do you see any downside to the proverbial 80, 20 rule? 80-20 will being focused on the 20% that has the greatest. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think that's it's such a magical uh, shorthand, and I think it plays out in almost every aspect of life. So, uh, but really, it's about getting you know clarity around your priorities, and you know, I, I think that's worth talking about for a minute or two. Um, one of the things that I've come to appreciate, because again, we work a lot with leadership teams talking about their strategy and their priorities. And sometimes when we say like, what are your priorities? The lists often come back that they're way too long, right? You know, 12 things. One of my partners worked with a team that presented them a list of 182 priorities. Um, and and I possible think, to execute. No, exactly. And, and what I've come to understand a couple of things. One is that the word priority itself is a problem. Because I think it's a little fuzzy. And because it's this idea, people fall in this trap of, of putting things that are just kind of like everybody should be working on. And, and the pattern that I started noticing is when I was looking at lists of priorities is the number of bullet points, Mark, that began with the same two words, which were continue to. Mm-hmm. So if this is your priority and you're going to continue to doing it, is it really a priority? <laughs> Right. Because it's probably something that you just have to do. Like, you know, as a human being, my priorities include eating and sleeping and breathing. Right. (laughs) But those aren't really my priorities. Um, And I think another trap that companies fall into is that every person on the leadership team feels like their department deserves the respect of having a priority assigned to them. So that's how lists get to be 10 or 12 long. But I think I if I had a magic wand, I would get rid of the word priority from business and replace it with outcome. Because yeah, I just think, I think- you, you have to ask yourself, like, you know, the simple question, you know, whether you're a solo entrepreneur running a big company, you have to start with the question, like, 12 months from now, what are the three things we need to have accomplished for us to be able to look back and say we had a good year? Like, that is a really clarifying conversation, and all your priorities should flow out of that. And every investor looks at things that are measurable 
And if they aren't measurable, they're not in a priority to them. So, right. and I think that's for boards, investors, um, both uh, venture capital and for us as people who are counting on these folks you know, um, for our pensions. Yep. So for sure, it, if you were going to invest time and energy to focus on becoming stronger as a leader, which aspects of leadership will provide the greatest return on that effort, whether you're a CEO or a first-time manager? To me, you know, just going back to this idea of simplifying complexity, I think it is a discipline in the same way you go to the gym and build a muscle. I think in all aspects of your life, you should always be pushing yourself to fit, simplify complexity and to watch leaders who do it well and to watch leaders who don't do it well. So you just sort of really key in why it's such an important skill. We also devote an entire chapter of the book. One of the seven key tests is listening. Yeah, and I think listening is a underrated superpower of leaders. Um, it can be a real trap for you if you don't do it well, because, you know, the higher you go in an organization, especially a big company, um, there's always bad news in the company. You just you, as a leader, you can get trapped in a bubble. Um, so you have to create almost like a listening ecosystem or infrastructure so that you know what's really happening. But I think just almost like at a leadership level, one-on-one, -on -one, small teams, Developing the skill of truly listening, you know, without judgments, without agendas, truly listening for understanding and all the sort of body language that you do, the look in your eye that you just want to understand and hear people, you know, that is such an essential skill for leadership and life. And because in society, there is less and less listening going on with our devices and everything else that I just think you set yourself apart as a leader and as a human being um, if you become a good listener. When I sometimes I, I give a lot of talks at business schools and, you know, with cohorts and things like that, sometimes we talk about listening. And I always like to, you know, to ask the audience and, you know, for everybody on this call, like just 15 seconds to yourself, like who is the best listener you know? You just think about, who that person is in your friends, family, colleagues, network, and what is it about them that sort of earns them that status in your mind of being the best listener you know? And then we sort of talk about listening, and, and then the punchline at the end is then I challenge the audience. I say, all right, if we were to interview all your friends, family, and colleagues and ask them who's the best listener you know, would they say it's you? And if it isn't, maybe that could be a personal challenge for you to become that person who is the best listener in all your friends, families, colleagues, networks. I hate to say it. I think it's the thing that men uh, are in a constant need of working on, as women will con uh, constantly uh, tell you, is that men are always looking to solve problems as opposed to just listening about them before trying to act and uh, ride in the white horse to go and get that solved. A question from the audience. What are your thoughts about generalists versus specialists in terms of leadership success? What have you observed among leaders who've succeeded in fields where they were not already subject experts or specialists? We've seen that in lots of different fields, especially in the pharmaceutical area where they didn't do that. And you talk about that in the book. Yeah. So I'd love to provide like a cookie cutter answer, but I do think it depends. Um, I think they're in, certainly in some fields. You know, I, I think it's great for everybody to um, kind of pursue that metaphorical T, if you will, that, you know, going deep on something because, you know, I, I think it's it is a skill to become an expert at something. 
right? And there's probably some core area of expertise that you need or that you have that you should build. Because I don't think anybody who can be all surfacey is going to necessarily succeed. So you have to know how to go deep on something. But look, I, and there's now books on this now, but I, I think it's great to be a generalist because I think, especially with the world being so disrupted, that if you want fresh thinking and fresh eyes, you know, coming to a subject from a different angle that anybody else has, that's where often the magic is. I mean, you know, I came to the leadership space through journalism, right? And, you know, I didn't come up through sort of academ academia or being a business leader myself. It was, you know, I spent 30 years as a journalist and then had this idea of like, what if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them a single question about their companies and, you know, started doing these interviews and it all looks great in hindsight. But at the time I decided like, why don't I give this a try? And I ran into a couple of headwinds myself. Like people were skeptical. It's like, you really think you're going to get something from these people? I go, yeah, I do. Um, and so, but you know, so I came at, at the leadership topic from a journalist point of view and, uh, you know, contributed to our understanding, I think, in a small way um, from that. So I think you should always be looking for that ways of like, how can I get a fresh angle on this? Because people may be staring at a problem for too long, but you need that fresh eyes. I'm a, uh, my undergraduate degree is in journalism, and I spent five years as a full term where I've been writing for years. And the reason I started this program is for exactly that reason was that I was just really super interested in doing it and, and in sharing it. Now we have listeners from 50 countries that listen to this program. One of the questions that we have here is, how do you feel about the thought that you should manage projects but lead people? What, what's your thinking about that? Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. I mean, you know, management to me is a little bit of like you're given a certain number of resources and, you, you know, uh, an output is expected from them, including people. And whereas leadership is inspiring people and um, getting them to do achieve things that maybe they didn't think were possible, um, creating that vision. Um, like to me, that's what much more leadership is about, bringing out the best in people, because I do think that, you know, as human beings, we all have the, the best version of ourselves and the worst version of ourselves. And um, I think the best companies, the best leaders bring out the best in people. Um, you know, we've seen all sorts of case studies of bad companies and, you know, the people who work there, whether it's Uber or Wells Fargo or whatever, they, they weren't bad people. It's just the culture that, you know, it created reward systems and status symbols and all that that encouraged the wrong behaviors. Um, so, to me, that's the goal because, you know, I've, I've worked for a couple of amazing leaders in, in my career um, and some bad ones, too. And the best ones to me, it's just they get people to, you know, again, just sort of like achieve things that they didn't think possible. It's And and also to, to see, I, I think in broad brush, there are two kinds of leaders and those who see the people who work for them as kind of like, these are my assets to help me achieve my goals. It's more self-centered. And then there are leaders who are more selfless and see their team as, wow, like I, I see this amazing trajectory for you and possibilities for your career that I want to help you achieve those. And the best leaders help people see stories for themselves that they may not see because sometimes we are a little bit self-limiting in terms of the narratives we tell ourselves. But the best leaders say, like, you may be, you know, head of marketing, but I, you, you've got such an amazing brain for thinking about people. Like, I want you to be our chief people officer. 
And, you know, we see stories like that all the time, but it's like the leader's ability to see things in people and inspire them to do great things. To me, that's what it's about. Nothing ignites somebody more than when somebody tells them they're great at something and that they see great promise in them, even with us, with our own children. When right. we tell them how capable they are in a certain area, they rise to the occasion. Uh, one of the questions from the audience is, is, what is the best way to improve the important skill of simplifying complex problems? Are there any golden nuggets that you could be that could be shared? Other than, it, you know, it takes work. It takes a dis discipline. I mean, if, you know, if you're writing a six page document, can you cut it in half? Can you cut it in half again? If you've got uh, a 20 slide deck, can you cut it in half? Like what are the core insights? And I do think it's just this sort of discipline, this habit of mind, this constantly questioning and pushing yourself. Like, what is the essence of this? You know, when I, I spent 12 years as an editor at the New York Times managing teams of reporters, and I would, you know, if they had an idea they want to pitch me, they would go in a conference room, and I would always start the conversation the same way, which is like, what's the 12-word pitch on this? And it's, you know, they could have 20 words or 25 words. I didn't care, but it was just like, get can you get to the essence of it? And it was my co-author, Kevin, who ran Amgen for 12 years, um, you know, it was interesting once I started working on the book with him, if somebody would come into his office when he was CEO and pitch him idea, he would say to them, what's the big idea? And so what? And what I just said is the first sentence of the first chapter of the book was we tell Kevin's story about simplifying complexity. And I think you just need to constantly be asking yourself, whatever context you're in, like, what is the big idea? And why is it important? And whatever you're doing and whatever you're seeing, you know, watching a movie, like what's the core idea here? You know, my co-author, Kevin, has got this incredible brain where he can like laser into the essence of something. You know, I, I came to understand getting to know him better. Like you could ask him about literally anything and he's going to say, these are the three most important things you need to know about that. And it's like, he's usually right. <laughs> well, it's funny because that was my next question. It's about this big idea. And in, in that context, what are the best challenging questions to ask your leadership, the people report to the leadership? What, what should a leader be asking people besides the big idea? Are there certain challenging questions that you think are good for to be asked? I mean, for a leader of a team to ask their team? Yes. Yeah, so I think setting aside the strategy stuff, but you know, we do have a chapter on on teams, like how to build real teams, because you know I, I think this is a huge challenge at a lot of companies um, where people assemble a leadership team, but there's really no sort of meta discussion about how the team is going to work together. You know, I think I mentioned we work with a lot of leadership teams, and we start off our you know sessions with them. It's like what do you guys want from each other? We always hear the same thing. It's like, we want to have each other's back, mm -hmm. right? But most teams don't have each other's backs. And it's because the leader hasn't set the tone to create, you know, a, a kind of subculture within the team of how they're going to work together. And so instead you get this dynamic. I, mean, I always joke that the reason HBO ran Game of Thrones on Sunday night was to get people ready for work on Monday, <laughs> right? Because yeah, that's- yeah. You know, that's how a lot of leadership teams work. It's this idea of like I'm competing with all of you for attention and resources. And so for me to win, I've got to kind of throw my elbow at you. And you as a leader, you have to apply a really explicit counterweight to set a much more productive 
um, dynamic on the team. And I also think it's incumbent upon the team. We, we share the story in the book of leadership team at a company called ServiceNow. It's another cloud company. But during offsite, the team said to each other, it's like, we need to create our own social contract of how we're going to work together and behaviors we're going to expect from each other and call each other out on if we don't live up to them. And at one point, they even kicked the CEO out of the room. And they said, like, we need to work on this ourselves. Um, and so I, I think that I've seen too many leaders who have this kind of standoff approach with their teams and wonder, it's like, how come you guys don't get along better, not realizing that it's their responsibility to set the tone? about their role, about the team's role, how, you know, norms and behaviors, you've got the broader values of the company and ideally they're aligned with what they are for the team, but that should be an explicit discussion and very often it's not. When a manager comes with a problem and I think you're just talking about this now, should they get, should the manager give the answer to the employees or should they ask them what the solution is uh, first? Because I think a lot of managers, when they hear someone come with a problem, they immediately go to the, their own solution. What, what do the best leaders say about that? Yeah, and, and look, I, I was an editor for many years and I'm guilty of that problem. It's like reporter would come in and say, I'm having trouble cracking the code on the structure of this piece. And it's like, well, here's my thought. Um, and because first of all, it's, you know, it makes you feel good that you've got the answer and it's also more time efficient, right? Um, but I think the best ones see that as more of a coaching. It's like, well, tell me what your thoughts are. What are you struggling with? And what aspect in particular? And, you know, if, if that's your theory A of the case, like, Maybe there's these three consequences of that that you weren't aware of. So what are some other options? So it, to me, it's just the Socratic part and sort of thinking of yourself like, okay, this is a coaching moment to help you figure out how to do this yourself. But um, again, I think there's too many leaders who like, they aren't built that way and they don't have the time to do that. But one of the uh, things I read about in your book, I thought was uh, interesting uh, was, could you please talk about, and I'm going to butcher this guy's name, uh, Dinesh uh, Palawal, yeah. uh, uh, Harmon International Strategy Framework on Communication. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the first chapter is about, first of all, this important habit of mind that I described, simplifying complexity. But to me, that is manifested most importantly by a leader in the strategy. And so there's a section on strategy in that chapter. And we talk about why that word is a bit of a trap and means a lot of different things to different people. But again, my approach for leadership is, is reporting, interviewing, right? And when I interviewed Dinesh, um, he shared the strategy framework that they used at Harmon International. He stepped down from the company now. But it's this simple four-part four framework once he shared it with me, I said, God, that's brilliant. And we've adopted, we always give him full credit to be clear, but we share it with our clients and they tend to say, that's a much simpler way. So there's, it's a one page exercise. There's four components to it. Um, and this is a way to summarize strategy. So the first one is like a concrete summary statement, one or two sentences of what you are trying to achieve. Again, not some general high altitude description of what the company does, but what you're trying to achieve in say the next 12 months or three years or even five years if you're a bigger company. Part two is what are the three or four levers you have to pull to achieve that goal? So if that's your goal, break it down. What do you need to do to achieve that goal? Then the third part is, okay, let's have the reality check about what are the three or four challenges you have to overcome to achieve that goal? 
because we need, you know, sometimes companies don't like to talk about like the headwinds or the challenges. So let's get, make those explicit. And the fourth part is some scoreboard by which you make, measure progress. And that could be something that's quantitative, hitting certain marks, it could be qualitative and said, by this date, we will launch this product or something, but some sense of like what progress and success looks like. And we use that framework with leadership teams and this is very clarifying. And one of the mentors that works at our firm, um, she had the great idea that she uses that when she's mentoring clients, not only to, to help them think through the strategy for their team or their company, but she said, why don't you do this for your personal life now? Like outside of work, what is your simple plan? We just call it a simple plan for lack of a better term. But how would you fill that out for your own self, right? your personal goal, that summary statement, the three or four things you're going to do to get there, the challenges you have to overcome and how you're going to measure progress. And she says that really lands well with people. Yeah, I think so as well. Uh, another question that we have here is um, because of the pandemic, lots of businesses went through and continue to go through transformation. What were some of the best practices and or thinking for transforming a business? You had some good examples, uh, like your co-author's experience at Amgen and yours at the New York Times. Yeah. So the pandemic that we went through, I mean, the thing that I think separated companies early on, because everybody was knocked down, right? It's like this big tsunami that rolled around the world. The thing that separated the companies are the ones who quickly shifted to seeing that as an opportunity. Like for all this bad news, this is an opportunity to go back to those threshold foundational questions of things like, if we were building this company from scratch today, what would we do differently, right? What have been the momentum killers that now this is an opportunity to get rid of those? How can we rethink our business again? Like this is an opportunity and we are looking forward. I heard this great expression from a former CEO. He said, you know, you got to rip off the rear view mirror. Right. Like any company that's saying, man, we just need to get this through this and get back to the way things used to be. It's like there's no getting back to the way things used to be. And sort of like no rear view mirror. Everything's forward. Time to reinvent the company and see it as a great opportunity to do so. So I think that's point one. Whenever there's change and disruption and transformation, that always makes employees uh, makes employees uneasy. Right. Because it means risk and uncertainty and people tend not to like that. And so as a leader, you have to have a framework for talking people through that. And I think it starts with making a clear case for how the status quo can't hold, right? This is where we are today. These are the trend lines that are not sustainable for us. This is what the general path to success that we're laying out looks like. And then there's a couple of, you know, there's, there's a couple of frameworks that you have to bring to that conversation because if somebody says, okay, yeah, but how do we know that's going to work, which typically happens, right? Then as a leader, you have to be able to say something to the effect, we can't be certain this is going to work. We can only be 70% sure it's going to work, but we all need to commit 100% to making it work. And then we'll pivot if we need to. I think another important framework for helping people sort of ease their discomfort is being separating sort of mission from tradition. Another way of thinking of that is like, as part of the transformation, say, look, there are some things about us that are not going to change and are never going to change. And they tend to be like around, again, purpose, mission, core values. But we are going to change how we're going to deliver on those. 
So this idea of separating out mission and tradition, I think is a really useful framework to get people on board for the transformation. Because if you just say wholesale transformation, people are gonna run for the hills. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, what do you think about, and what did you learn from interviews about how to pick a diverse team so everyone didn't look and sound like the leader, which you discussed in the chapter on leadership? And you started to allude to that in the beginning about making sure that women minorities are, 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 are represented. But I mean, it just seems logical, right? I mean, like you'd want that as part of the mix uh, in a successful organization. We've seen studies from the Harvard, uh, in the Harvard Business Review, that companies who have that diversity end up having a return of 20 to 30% greater. So what, what, what did you learn about that? You know, it, it came up a lot during the interviews because I would always ask the leaders, like, what were some important leadership lessons you learned even early on? And a number of them told me a, a sort of similar story that when they first started as a leader in building teams, they basically would hire like mini me versions of themselves um, to the point where some colleagues would even make fun of them because like they'd hire people who look like them or went to the same school. Um, and, you know, but in inevitably, as they sort of grew as a leader, they, they realized the, the problem with that, which is like, you don't get the diverse thinking, right? And if you just like how enlightening a conversation is it going to be? How vigorous a debate is it going to be around the table if everybody's built the same way? And so usually there's some epiphany um, in their leadership development, which is like, I can't do this mini me version of myself. I need, you know, people with different backgrounds and approaches and thinking. Um, so look, I, I'm, I'm not being uh, uh, sort of naive about this. I, I still think if you go through the leadership teams of Fortune 500 companies, there's still a lot of them that are overwhelmingly, you know, white males. Um, but I do think we are in this moment where things are changing and companies are just, you know, whether it's from the board or institutional investors or employees, customers, like they're just not putting up with the sort of all white male leadership team anymore. Um, and I think enlightened companies are not only getting the, you know, understanding the importance of diversity, but also it's like we should reflect our customer base and the communities we live in. So I, I, I do think there's this moment and things are going to be different long term. Yeah, but I think also people's background and experiences about how they grew up have a different view of life. And that's going to help the company. A question from the audience. I was interested that you mentioned 12 months, three years or five years when thinking about strategy. What are your views of thinking beyond that uh, to 20 years? I look, the Chinese automatically think. 10 years out. That's a, that's a bare minimum. Yeah. And, and I think if you're getting 10 or 20 years out, like the goal is, you know, whatever that goal is, it's going to be bigger and maybe more generalized and more amorphous, um, you know, whatever industry you want to dominate or something like that. But I think when you set a time frame of 12 months or three years or five years, and again, I think the smaller the company, the tighter the time frame. But when I was at the New York Times and kind of lived through the transformation there, um, in 2015, they set out a strategy document um, that had like a five-year horizon with a very specific target about digital revenue. Um, and that felt about right. Um, 
because with that, you're going to get a level of specific specificity. I mean, the idea that having a, you know, strategy document for the next 20 years that gets into some granular, how are we going to do that? I don't know if that's the best use of anybody's time because, you know, disruption is here to stay, right? Uh, and, yeah, especially because of technology, for sure. Um, the last question I have for you is, how did leaders of fast-growing multinational businesses manage to keep their sanity and their families? I once worked for a guy who was traveled uh, 60 times a year just to Japan. So yeah. how did these, what was the insights you got from them about that? Because I think that's a big concern, especially for a lot of young leaders who are starting families. Yeah, look, I, I don't think anybody should fool themselves. Like these top jobs, these CEO jobs, they are stamina jobs, right? Um, I think they are kind of 24-7. I think those are three shift days, right? You start early, maybe you wake up to 100 emails, then you got a long day. And then there's like a three-hour shift at the end of the day to go through meeting documents and emails and other things. I think it's just the reality. But I think the ones that do it well, um, I think, you know, it starts with your team, right? If you want to have a life as a leader, you got to make sure you have great people around you. And I've heard a lot of leaders say, you know, like your top three priorities as a, as a CEO are the team you build, the team you build, and the team you build, because that's going to make a difference. If you have to do the jobs of people in your teams because they're not good enough, you're just going to get, you know, you're going to get slammed. And look, these just sound like, you know, maybe empty calorie reminders, but they're important. It's like you need to take care of yourself, right? You know, diet and exercise, um, but I also think there's this uh, insight, the last chapter of the book is called The Inner Game of Leadership. And I think the final point I want to make is that one of the things I think is so hard uh, about leadership for people who are, are new leaders is there's simply so much contradictory advice out there. You know, it's like lead from the front, lead from the back, be patient, act with urgency, be compassionate, hold people accountable. You just go on and on and on. And it's like, these are all con contradictions. And and it can be kind of overwhelming because when you're a leader, it's like every minute there's some new situation you're dealing with. And then you say, well, what am I supposed to be in that moment? Is it urgent or patient or compassionate or hold people accountable? And so all those pairs that I just lifted up, listed off, I think the important insight is to understand them as paradoxes. Those are not or constructs, they are and. And to understand as a leader that you have to sort of Find the balance point in each of those and then flex depending on the needs of the moment. Because I've always been struck by the, the look I see in the leader's eyes. And the best ones to me, there's this sense of like calm and confidence. And it's like, how did they get that? And I think a big part of this idea is like they understand that leadership is a series of paradoxes. But once you understand them that way, then it gives you a framework for dealing with all these new situations. So to me, it's like getting calm and confident inside to just deal with all this stuff. Then it becomes a bit easier. Adam, thank you so much. And I want to thank the audience. We're now up to people from 50 countries listening. And because of you, we're actually booked through March of next year. So uh, with authors coming every Friday. Uh, Adam, I hope you'll send me your other books because maybe we'd like to have you back on if you're willing. Sure, of course. Thank you. Well, everybody, enjoy your weekend. Uh, thank you again for attending. And Adam, everybody should be reading this book, especially if you're looking to lead a, a company or know someone that is. Have a great weekend. Great. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. 
Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.